Before we get started, a word. In this episode, I talk to a Holocaust survivor about her story and her experiences as an educator and artist. There is going to be some disturbing content, and listener discretion is advised. Welcome to American Rabbi Project, the podcast about American Judaism from the perspective of rabbis across the country. I'm Justin Regan. This is the start of a special mini-series where I interview Holocaust educators, including survivors, about the state of Holocaust education and remembrance in America today. At the time of this publishing, we're approaching January 27th, the anniversary of the liberation of the Auschwitz death camp. This date has since been designated by the United Nations as International Holocaust Remembrance Day. The Holocaust was the methodical and brutal genocide of six million Jews and many others by the Nazis and their collaborators. It continues to be a challenge to calculate the exact number of millions of other peoples who perished in the Holocaust, a number that includes Slavic and Roma peoples, handicapped individuals, homosexuals, political dissenters, and other peoples deemed physically, racially, or ideologically inferior by the Nazis. Another term used for this tragedy is the Shoah, the Hebrew word for destruction, and I will use these words interchangeably. On January 27th and other Holocaust commemoration days throughout the year, personal narratives are shared, memorials are held, calls are made to end the continuing plague of hatred, and data is brought to the public eye about how the knowledge of the Shoah seems to fade more and more. A 2018 survey commissioned by the Conference of Jewish Material Claims Against Germany found 11% of U.S. adults have not heard of or are unsure if they have heard about the Holocaust. That number is doubled when it comes to millennials. 31% of U.S. adults and 41% of U.S. millennials think 2 million or fewer Jews were killed in the Shoah. Again, the real number is 6 million. A 2014 survey by the Anti-Defamation League found a little over half the world's population has heard of the Shoah, and a third say it has not been accurately portrayed by history. In addition, blatant Holocaust denial and neo-Nazism seems more emboldened than ever, and there are cases where you can find an ignorance or even a belittling of the Holocaust all over the world, from Japan to Poland to the United States. This is why I chose to do this mini-series, to ask those who educate the world about the Shoah on how we can reach people with the right messages to counter ignorance, hatred, fading memories, and apathy, to help newer generations stay firmly connected to the horrors and lessons of the past. Today, we'll hear from a lady who has made these connections. She's done it through her personal narrative and her personal art. Ms. Strobel Weaves History I'm Trudy Strobel, a child survivor of the Holocaust, an embroiderer, and an artist of Judaic art. Trudy Strobel is one of those people who lights up whenever she greets anybody, be it a longtime friend, a student in a classroom, or a stranger with a recorder. It's like she sees the beautiful energy in each person, and it brings out hers. That's the feeling I got when I met her at her house in San Marino, California. Her living room and dining room is filled with SoCal sunshine, friendly blue colors, and some of her art. 
this artwork has been gaining more and more exposure as she has recently been the subject of various writings and even a short movie. She has a traveling exhibit currently on display, and a book about her life is coming out in April called Stitched and Sewn, The Life-Saving Art of Holocaust Survivor Trudy Strobel by Jody Savin. Right now, I'm busy working on a piece on Jerusalem. I was there two years ago, and... Um, uh, came back, oh, I must do a piece of Jerusalem. Now I'm home. And I think, how can you make another piece of Jerusalem? <laughs> Thousands of pictures have been uh, taken and paintings drawn through the centuries. <laughs> so uh, I did come up with an idea, and I'm working on it, and I'm very pleased about it. Strobel's craft is embroidery, sewing various materials onto fabric, and her work is stunning. She's done portraits and images of smiling family members, serious music composers, and charismatic Jewish women from the Bible and modern-day history. There's Judaica art with chirping birds, flowing Hebrew letters, and plenty of pomegranates. Much of her art tells a story, and there are some very dark moments. In one piece, Nazis burn books outside of a vandalized storefront, a reference to Kristallnacht, or the Night of Broken Glass, often referred to as the prelude or even the start of the Holocaust in November of 1938. Another tapestry shows Jews being loaded onto train cars, and another has, among other things, a skeleton staring at you from inside an oven. For Strobel, her story of horror and survival is fundamental to her sewing, and sewing was and is fundamental to her survival. The Nazis came in in 1942, and they knocked on the door, and whatever you have, you take with you uh, on food and, and clothing. And uh, I, myself, was only worried about one thing, and that was my papa doll. Strobel was four when the Nazis came for her and her mother. She grew up in Ukraine, then part of the Soviet Union, and her dad was sent to Siberia before she was born. But before he was detained, he bought a doll for his unborn daughter. And for Strobel, it was her connection to the father she never knew. We were told to go on a wagon. These wagons were pulled by horses, and uh, the Nazis also had trucks and jeeps and their military, whatever uh, equipment they had. But our th things were put on this wagon with horses. It took a very long time for us. We didn't even know where we were going till towards the end. It was Loch, Poland. And uh, one of the Nazi Gestapo guards, what, whatever their titles would be, he tore my doll away from me. And uh, I was very affected by that. I cried. Mama said, oh, quiet, don't cry. She was worried something else would happen to me. I, I still think about that when I say it. Many victims of the Holocaust were killed as soon as the Nazis invaded an area. Others were forced to a camp or a ghetto. These were parts of cities that were walled off and used as a method of seclusion and detainment, not only for the Jewish population of the host city, but Jews from other areas were also funneled in. Strobel and her mother were sent to the ghetto in Loge, Poland. And so we get to Loge, 
there we had to go to uh, through a entlausung, uh, taking off the lice. That's what it's what the name is, and and we were herded into a large room, m- mothers and children. I don't know what happened to us. I I just held on. I mean, the the terror of being naked with mothers and ch- other children in a large room, and then we were given our dirty clothes again, and we left. Uh, Mama and I were were ordered to go to the to the Jewish ghetto, the Lodge ghetto, and there times were so hard there. Many families in a room. the The houses were full of of Jewish people. There was no room, and very little food. The Nazis intentionally overcrowded and underfed the ghetto inhabitants while using them for forced labor. A Jewish council oversaw internal matters, including the horrifying task of filling out deportation quotas demanded by the Nazis, because if they didn't decide who would be sent to the camps, the Germans would. The head of the Lodge Jewish Council felt the best way to maintain survival for his people was to be as productive as possible. Forced labor in Lodge was mostly in the textile field, tasks like making German uniforms. It's here that Strobel's mother went to work. She was trained as a tailor, and her skill made her deemed useful. And I stayed with her all the time. This is the wondrous thing in my life that I'm still here. And one day, uh, we were told to go to the train station. Whatever we had, we took with us. And train station, well, you would think a train station, but what it was, a station of cattle wagons. Cattle wagons. And there was a plank. We went up on the plank, and I was on the outside. I, I... I never forget because there was a big dog and soldiers standing, but I really saw one pair of boots, and they were very shiny boots. I still was only four at that time, and the dog had his teeth open and snarled, and it. I was very afraid. We get into the wagon, and uh, they had a pail in a corner, but it was so full because Nazis, Drecke Juden, they pushed us with the, with the uh, uh, rifles, with the butts of the rifles. And so we were pushed in and uh, was no room for any grown-up to sit down. It's just me. I was there between the legs of people standing. And a lot of them got sick. They vomited. Can you imagine the stinge? There were other bodily accidents. The the whole room, it it just is impossible to describe um, the way way things were, you know, how it smelled. We had no food and no water. I mean, nothing to drink. Loge suffered the same fate many other ghettos did complete liquidation, despite the attempts of the Jewish councils to preserve a population. Many, many, countless many would be sent to their death. Strobel and her mother were sent to a labor camp. Then they, we received a bed, and um, 
they said this would be our sleeping area. And the bed was made of wood, wooden planks, and the uh, um, mattresses were filled with with straw at one time. But at this time, it was mushy. It was just really very, very dirty. And the pillowcase, dirty. We had one blanket. What is one blanket in the very cold? There, Mama uh, then was told where she would be going to sew. They had another barrack where there were just sewing machines. And, uh, and I still stayed with her. This is the unbelievable thing that I am here, that I could stay with my sweet mama. And uh, the, the Nazis didn't check every minute as to what was happening in the, in the, um, in the barrack. Uh, so whenever a Nazi came to check, you know, they had, and uh, I would be hiding behind mama. I was just afraid of them because they knew I was there. They counted us. So from that uh, camp, we were then moved to another camp, and then another was three total. As the war was reaching its end, the Nazi death machine kept churning. As opposed to letting their captives go or leaving them to be liberated, in many cases, the Nazis used up resources and manpower to bring them further into Germany's core. Whether it was by rail, truck, or death marches, they did not let up. Finally, on one spring day, American soldiers liberated Strobel's camp. And he said, the war is over. We're free. You're free. Now... You look around, we were all emaciated, without strength. But my sweet mother, she says, Trudele, get up. We're going to America. And there, you know, here I am, of course, I follow Mama. And we get up and we leave. And this was now in Germany. And they had... Uh, of course, fields of green. It, it was at this time of the year, uh, of grass. And in the grass, tiny marguerites grew that get up to maybe three inches tall. And I, I picked some and I gave them to Mama, I think two or three. They were sent to a displaced persons camp where they received food, clean clothes, medical care, and a real bed. But for Strobel, the thing that truly brought her joy were beads she received from a Red Cross care package. And I put them in my, in my hands, and I said, Mama, look at what I got. And it was so beautiful, all colors, and they were jewels to me. And she saw a spark that she hadn't seen in years, and she says, Trudela, we'll make something of this. And I said, Mama, could it be a goose? <laughs> Uh, so she found a picture of a flying goose, and, and she transferred it on parchment paper. And then she took a piece of her skirt from Russia and tore it off, and then taught me how to, how to attach beads to the goose so everything would be done in a very st- strong way so you can't just, you know, suddenly a bead will come off. And she says... Trudela, you have to put the beads very close together on the neck because the neck 
the, the goose needs a stiff neck in order to fly. Of course, I believed it, and I now know, already many years that I know, that it was a very clever way of me doing a good job. <laughs> so, she was so wise and wonderful. Strobel didn't have enough beads at the time to finish the goose, so her mother said they'd finish it when they got to America. But that trek would take several years. First, they were sent to live in a small house near Würzburg in Bavaria. It was a region where a lot of displaced Jews were sent to live after the war. The government gave us money, like a, like a stipend, some money every month, and food stamps. But you know, um, Justin, that's never enough. And uh, it was very little money. So Mama uh, went and uh, she offered to some of the farmers, because this was in Bavaria, a very uh, Nazi town. I mean, it's still, you, you could just feel all of it. But my courageous mother asked if they would, uh, one of the farm ladies, if she could uh, turn a coat around, which she did in the camps also. And uh, she would, you know, take the coat apart put it together again, and uh, thereby earn extra money. Strobel's mom earned a reputation for this work in the town. Strobel honed her craft working with her mom, and in some cases learned from other women in the houses they worked at. But it was still anything but a friendly environment. Bavaria was the original home of the Nazi party, and its presence was not gone. And I started school, and I was... uh, then eight years old, and as we were going into the classroom, uh, I heard Trekke Jude behind me, dirty Jew. And I came home, I didn't even cry, because uh, <laughs> that's, that's how it is. And I came home and I told Mama, and she always says, my arm is kind. You say this in Yiddish, if a child doesn't have a father. You know, you're my poor, poor child. When Strobel was 13, she and her mother managed to board a ship and set sail to the United States. One day, the captain says, Statue of Liberty. Oh, Justin. We, we ran up on, on deck and uh, just, just to see it. And Mama cried. And this is how I know that people that want to come here, how they feel. Uh, I, I don't know if an American that has lived here all their life would understand that. And this is why I'm so much to help the newcomers to our America. They would settle in Chicago, where Strobel's mother would once again work as a seamstress. Strobel says the pay wasn't a lot, so she also went to work at the age of 13. Her first jobs were at hotels and restaurants. And there I learned how to peel potatoes, sacks of them, Justin, sacks for a restaurant, and and washing dishes, washing floors. And you know... I was so proud when I came home with my money to give Mama that I could do something, you know, to help. And that's why I I always think of other people that come from another country. They don't speak the language. 
they have to do this menial labor. We must respect these people. They're working. That's what is so wonderful, you know. And they know how to get along by doing this. And that's why uh, all of us, especially to my students, I say, respect these wonderful people. Strobel would eventually marry a German Jew who also came to Chicago after the war. They spent over 55 years together. They had two children and moved out to California. Her husband was also a survivor of the Shoah. They never talked about it, and their kids were unaware. So John was ready, my oldest son, to go to university. Hans, we have to talk about this and tell them. And my husband and I, we never talked about it either to each other. There's very little that I know. He, he, was, uh, he lived in hiding in northern Germany. And of course, I told you my story. So one day, here at this table, we talked about it. And they said, why didn't you tell us earlier? And you know, sometimes we don't know as grown-ups if we're always doing the right thing. I think parents also navigate, you know, what is right and what should be best. This is not an uncommon phenomenon among survivors. Many did not speak about their experience or at least waited to do so until later in life, and many still don't talk about it to this day. The trauma of the past could manifest in many ways. For Strobel, she had a complete breakdown in her mid-40s. And I suddenly became very ill, very sick. I didn't want to move. I didn't want to get up. I didn't want to do anything. I didn't speak. And my husband and I, he, he said, we have to go and see a doctor. And I went to see a psychiatrist. And even with him, it took a while before I ever spoke. And then... Uh, he knew about the doll, then I told him. And he says, Trudy, wouldn't you like to dress a doll like your doll was dressed? And I th- I thought, oh, you know, suddenly that was such a great idea. <laughs> With this project, Strobel began to heal. She used her sewing skills to dress dolls for an art piece that connected with her own trauma of being othered and her Jewish identity. I found that... There were 11 centuries of degradation against Jewish women. They had to dress, at times, dress differently when they went out. They wore badges. They also had different headdresses when they went out, just to show this is a Jewess. I then decided at that time that I would create 11 costumes of degradation. And as I, it took a year to do this, and a year of tears, Justin. When she finished, she took the dolls to the L.A. Museum of the Holocaust, and they instantly accepted them, and they remain on exhibit to this day. Strobel is pleased thousands upon thousands of children each year who go to the museum see her artwork, a visual aid to the history of anti-Semitism. As many people, myself included, can attest Her art is amazing. Yet, at the time, Strobel was shocked the museum wanted her work. You see, that feeling of being nothing was still in me because this is what was in my life for so many years. 
you could just step on me and I would be gone. The, um, the fear that you live through every day of something will happen to you and um, that, that somehow uh, never left you. You were always kind of um, uh, watchful, you know, as to happening. And it wasn't until a couple of years ago that she started to make more of her art public, thanks to the encouragement of a young girl, Maya Savin Miller, who met Strobel during a bat mitzvah project. Savin Miller applied for some grants and got the funds and space for Strobel to have her own exhibit. It contains much of Strobel's work, including the goose she started making at the displaced persons camp. It's not just an exhibit of art, but a visual teaching tool for the Holocaust. She has several pieces in that style, including one mural depicting the Shoah in all its horror. And there I show the movement of, of our people going in and ending up in the picture as being just bones down. And then I included uh, rabbis digging their own graves. Now, I did not witness this, but this is historically that has to be in there. Everything else is is uh, my memory. And uh, uh, then I show the, fur- the furnace in it and bodies, the um, smoke, six smoke, uh, smoking clouds of six million that were killed. And in the center, I have a Jewess, and she seems, she, she has hope. She says, Unter deine weiße Stern, under your white stars, stretch to me your pure hand, so my tears can rest in your hand. How beautiful is that? And that is the hope in that picture. Embroidery is remarkable because designs are done one stitch at a time. There is no such thing as a broad brushstroke or molding chunks of clay. Every action is minute. So I asked Strobel, how was she able to spend many years constantly focusing on a tapestry that illustrates such slaughter? I had to do this. I didn't know why. I was, I worked many, many hours a day just to do all the stitchery because I do such fine stitchery. Justin, I had to complete this to show what what happened to me, what should never happen again. And that's why I was pushed. Somebody pushed me, my dear. I don't know. Strobel once waited until her children were nearing adulthood to privately share with them her story. Now she tells it to the world, especially students. But when I talk to students, when they come to the museum, they sit there, they listen to every word, and they're so touched, and they're learning. And I, and I teach them that six million people of such, a small, of such a small population of Jews, it was devastating. This must never happen again. This is my my message to these wonderful students. And uh, in the meantime, they had seen the museum, and they 
really understood what I was talking about. When they've seen the museum and they listen to my story, they can they connect with with the things that are happening. And so as we are continuing to do this, uh, these are students that never hear a Jewish word in your life. <laughs> and they're now learning about it. They'll never forget it. I don't care how old they will be. Something will stick in their mind. And I always tell them to be watchful. Uh, someday you'll vote. Use, use your mind. Use the right direction because you don't want any kind of uh, dictatorship that somebody tells you you can't be a Catholic, you can't be a Jew anymore, and then that is what follows. Then you get, you know, the, the things with, it, uh, with, uh, with Hitler happened. As Strobel's artwork tours around the country, acts of anti-Semitism and racism in the United States continue to climb. When it comes to dealing with the persistent plague that is hatred, Strobel says it's important people exercise respect. If we have respect and feeling for another human being, nothing can happen like this again. And yet, even today, our country is so divided with so much hate because there's always going to be hate coming up and where are they going to get it to be blamed is the Jews. And it is happening today again. Uh, we, we get murdered and, and our synagogues get burned in, in the world. Do you know that I'm very afraid? And I've talked to other survivors that, are my age, <laughs> we're all that age, and um, it, we are very concerned. And somehow, America, I don't think, is involved that much. It really, the average person, they can't even think. I think a lot of people, especially the students I speak with, uh, their families, they never heard of it before, and, and others have, you know. but. It still is there. We don't even know about it. And that's why we must continue to write, talk, and and advance the idea not to hate and to respect. Trudy Strobel certainly does her part to advance these ideas. She enlightens through her words, her sewing, and her kind energy. She's a survivor and an educator. And like all other educators I talked to for this project, I asked Strobel, if there's only one thing people take away from your lesson, what do you want it to be? Never again. Never again should this happen to any one of us. Uh, because of ethnicity or religion, to be incarcerated, murdered for years, never again. What you believe, you have a perfect right as a human being to believe it. And there I include all religions. Strobel's art is currently on display at the Armory Center for the Arts in Pasadena, California through March 1st, 2020. Her book, Stitched and Sewn, The Life-Saving Art of Holocaust Survivor Trudy Strobel by Jody Savin is coming out this April. In the next episode, we're going to hear from the next generation of Shoah educators. Voices include a rabbi with survivor parents, a professor who grew up in post-war Germany, 
and a couple of screenwriters who use a cat to introduce children to Holocaust education. American Rabbi Project Ms. Strobel Weaves History is written and produced by me, Justin Regan. Derek Pova handles the web stuff. I also want to thank Sarit Rathbone, Jeremy Crones, Beth Vanderstoop, Dylan Abrams, and my parents for the assistance. Feel free to reach out to me by emailing justin at rabbiproject.com. You can also find me on facebook.com slash rabbiproject and on Twitter with the handle at rabbiproject. And until next time, shalom and safe driving.